I think I talked about this a couple weeks ago when Matt was here. Uh, this is maybe what happens with preachers is they forget you know, as they get older and they just tell the same stories over and over again. But I didn't preach, and I haven't preached since then, so I don't know how I told the story. I may be in some part of the confession, but I talked to you maybe. I, it's just coming back to me even as I thought about this this morning. But Odom and I moved this refrigerator, right? Did I talk about this? No? I did, yes. Maybe. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you anyway, so it doesn't matter. So uh, uh, we, we, ha- we got this new refrigerator, and um, you know, one of the things I hate about moving things around and resituating things is if, if it's not easy. I don't like it not being easy, and so I thought this was going to be super easy. I borrowed Rich's uh, you know, appliance dolly. I thought I'd just strap the thing on, and we could wheel it out the doors. I measured. They were wide enough. I'm like, we'll take it around through the garage, and we put this thing in our like TV media room. And so uh, as we pulled it in and pulled it around through the garage and took it through the media room door, the door was too small, and I couldn't get the door off, and so we had to end up taking the refrigerator doors off, and it was quite a piece of work, and I really didn't know what I was doing. We watched a YouTube video about it, and eventually, though, figured it out and got the refrigerator through the door, hooked it all back up. It all worked. It was great, right? And when we did that, uh, as we're leaving uh, the house, uh, you know, uh, Matt t- tells Danette, because we're, we're kind of late for Jaden's play performance, and Matt tells Danette, like, isn't it amazing how it, it just all came together at the perfect time? And there was this moment of exclamation, like, wow, what just happened? This was amazing. Oh, that was wonderful, right? Verse 33 in our text starts with such an interjection. Oh, this this idea of sitting back and admiring. Oh, man, that was awesome. Oh, man, you and I did that. Matt and I thought about that. It was this Clark Griswold moment, like where Clark sits on the edge of the hill in the movie Vacation after launching his family truckster over the hill, and he and Russ sit and open a can of beer. And Russ says, Dad, you must have launched us like 50 yards. And Clark says, Oh, son, this isn't nothing to brag about. And then under his breath, he goes, 50 yards, right? This kind of response of awe and, oh, what, what is worthy of that kind of response? Now, certainly to one degree, moving a refrigerator. Like, not that hard, but to a degree, for me to move the refrigerator and take the doors off, it, it requires that kind of response. It was awesome, but not that awesome. There's a difference between that interjection that says the experience of, of, of moving a refrigerator and taking off doors and the experience of driving into Zion for the first time or, or sitting at sunrise over Crater Lake and watching the sun come up or waking up on the Lost Coast or looking at a cloud nebula through a telescope or gazing at your newborn baby and wondering how does anyone live through that. Like in one, we feel proud, big, accomplished. And in another gaze, we feel humble and small. This O interjection isn't directed at Paul's waxing eloquently about the gospel, but it's other directed. It's a response to a God who has revealed himself of whom Paul has shared with this church. Like Paul has just riffed on God's invincible gift of love in chapters 1 to 8. Like God making beautiful things out of the dust. 
working all things for our good, taking enemies and making them not just friends and family, but uniting them to God in such a way through Jesus that nothing, nothing, nothing can separate them from the love of God. And this is all a gift, Paul says, offered to the ones who are most unworthy. And from there he goes into chapters 9 to 11 and riffs on God's unsearchable wisdom and mercy in that he will save both Jew and Gentile and he will pass over in judgments and uh, uh, some others and somehow God will work out his sovereign election through human will and responsibility. That God's character of mercy will be executed in his plan in spite of man's hardness of heart. That God's righteous justice will win the day alongside his love, grace, and mercy. And to that, Paul interjects. Oh. John Stott says for 11 chapters, Paul has been giving us his comprehensive account of the gospel. Step by step, he has shown how God has revealed his way of putting sinners right with himself and how Christ died for our sins and was raised for our justification how we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, how the Christian life is lived not under the law but in the Spirit, how God plans to incorporate the fullness of Israel and of the Gentiles into his new community. Paul's horizons are vast. He takes in time and eternity, history and eschatology, justification, sanctification, and glorification. And in light of this, There isn't anything puffed up in Paul like, I'm so glad I figured this out. This ain't a refrigerator on the moment of a threshold. There's nothing to be puffed out about. Paul instead has beheld glory and the response is worship. Stott continues, he says, now he stops out of breath. Oh, analysis and argument must give way to adoration. Like a traveler who has reached the summit of an alpine ascent and turns and contemplates, depths are at his feet, but waves of light illumine them. And there spread all around an immense horizon which his eye commands. Before Paul goes on to outline the practical implications of the gospel, he stops, he pauses, and he falls down before God and worships. You see, worship begins where theology ends. All the study of God, all the announcing of the good news, all the wrestling with the truth is meant to bring us to the threshold of the temple and to worship. And that's where we begin this morning, that we all worship something, right? We all worship something. Like, we are creatures who are made to worship. Our residential existentialist, David Foster Wallace, this quote, anytime I can use it, I use it. He said, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And this is Paul's doxology, that word, two Greek words, doxa and logos, coming together, the glory word, the words of glory. This is Paul's words of glory. And where do they land? They land on God. God is the object of Paul's praise. 
Paul overflows in praise at the mercy of God displayed to both Jew and Gentile. This emphasis is not on divine hiddenness. Like Paul isn't overflowing with praise at the otherness of God and that he is not like us so much that he is hidden from us. There are other faith traditions that hold out God in such a way. There is something wondrous in the otherness, in a God who is completely immutable, a God who commands and is other. But no, Paul's wonder is in the way the hidden wisdom of God has been revealed. Now let's think about this for a second. Like what do you do when you discover the subtext of something? Like you see a film or a work of art and you enjoy the film or the work of art for its production, its acting, its writing, but then you discover the story under the story. Like the plot line's telling a certain story, but then you discover that the artist was doing something creative with that and there's subtext to the story. Like hidden wisdom gets revealed. Like there's something more than just the plain reading of it. There's a hidden meaning that you discover. Now, Paul isn't saying he discovered anything. In fact, he's saying quite the opposite. This isn't Gnostic discovery. This is only worship. Paul is emptied out. He isn't praising himself, which ends at the next deflation of his wisdom, right? Paul, if, if Paul's the one that figured out this glorious plan of God, and he's the one he announces, and he's wondering at his own knowledge and declaring how wonderful God is in revealing it to himself, then at the next point of not discovering that wisdom, he would be deflated. But Paul is reveling that the hidden God has revealed himself to him and to God's people in such a way. It wasn't based on Paul's revelation. Paul is discovering something that God has revealed, namely that he is merciful. In Jesus, he is merciful to Jew and Gentile. God's plan is to save, and it's worthy of praise. And this is what Foster Wallace says to kind of riff off of this. And you can't read this, but I'll read it for you. The only choice we get is to what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body, beauty, sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep your fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, which they are, but he's wrong here, but it's that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They are the kind of worship you don't just gradually slip, you, you, you gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. You see, we all do this. We all have to have something to worship, to find meaning in. And Paul sets his gaze on God because God alone is infinite. God can hold the weight. That word kavad is heavy. It's related to worship. God is the heavy thing. 
that can hold us up and hold our worship up. So, when you hit the limits of what you can understand, worship God. Verse 33, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. There's two exclamations here. Oh, the depth of both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Paul is in awe of these divine qualities of God. He's in awe of God's knowledge. God's knowledge does not merely mean that he foresees all that will occur, although it certainly includes that idea. The notion that God ordains All that comes to pass is also entailed. So that the knowledge of God refers to his determining of all that happens. Paul is in awe of God's knowledge, what he knows and determines, and his wisdom, his saving plan. Paul has exclaimed in Romans 9 to 11 the substance of God's plan to Jew and Gentile to save them. And now he steps back. And he surveys what he has seen and what he has said and exclaims that God's saving plan is full of wisdom and knowledge. And verse 33b proceeds in the same vein, proclaiming the inaccessibility of God's judgments and ways to human beings. The inaccessibility is communicated through terms unsearchable and inscrutable. Of course, human beings perceive the course of history and events as they occur, right? We look down the timeline of history. We see things in the present moment, and we can look back in the past. Paul would not deny this, that we see events as they take place. The point is that mere observation of these events does not translate into an understanding of what God is doing in history. You see, humans see the bare events as they transpire, but they do not perceive the saving plan of God that is being accomplished in and through these events. Now, we love to speculate, right? It's why conspiracy theories are so alluring to us. We want that kind of knowledge to be able to look at what's happening in the moment, and discern eternity. Like, we want that knowledge. Paul understands this. This is why he directs our gaze and awe towards God. Like, we speculate, and when our speculations fail, we can look at the events of history as sound and fury signifying nothing, since we are unable to perceive our own wise plan or God's plan in history. But to perceive the meaning of the events of history... We need God's interpretive glasses that will enable us to see aright what he is up to. And the logic of the verses here progresses from God's wisdom and knowledge to his activity in the world. God's wisdom is infinite and immeasurable, and his wisdom is expressed in the way he guides, superintends the history of the world. Now, we can speculate. We can think at every rumor of something that something more is happening, but we do not know. God alone knows. And his way is at least in part inaccessible to us, and Paul is at wonder of this. In his wisdom and knowledge, God has planned history so that his judgments and ways would be affected in the lives of both Jews and Gentiles. He has imprisoned, we read in verse 32, that God has imprisoned all in disobedience in order to have mercy upon all. And to that, Paul 
is undone. Like, how does God do this? Like, have you asked the question when his providence impinges on your life? Like, have you thought about that? When God's providence impinges on your life, when you see how God has worked something out that you didn't expect, like this Garth Brooks-level status, like thanking God for unanswered prayers? Like, we all have those moments, right, where we are in awe of God and what he's done because we see his providence. But what do you do when you can't see it? Like, when you hit the limits of what you can understand, when you are driven to the end of yourself, do you come to those moments and go, man, it's just all sound of fury signifying nothing? In Revelation, we can know God truly but we can never know God fully. Paul says how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. And then he adds, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? My buddy Luke Evans says, the question is when you get to the end of what you can understand about what God is doing in the world in your life, how do you respond? When you wonder, what is God doing here? What is he up to? How is your life affected by the mystery of not knowing what he's doing? Now, sometimes we respond with attempting to push things we cannot know. We want certainty instead of mystery. That inevitably comes, by the way, when we study theology. And this can, can actually lead us into unhealthy places, When we push for certainty where we are supposed to reside in mystery, it pushes us to pride and arrogance and a sense of certainty about mysteries that we're never meant to have. This text teaches us to be content with not having all the answers and with the mystery of who God is. He has revealed as much as he sees fit for us to know and let us rest in that. Mary Oliver's poem, yes, listen to this line. Let me keep my distance always from those who think they have all the answers. Let me keep company always with those who say look and laugh in astonishment and bow their heads. This is what Paul does here. He says, look at God. And he laughs, as it were, and bows his head in praise. When you run into the brick wall of understanding, when God confounds and confuses you, when you enter into the mystery of his ways and his thoughts, the way to respond is to bow down and worship him. He is high and lifted up. He is greater than we can imagine. Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. Number two, when you get a glimpse of God, of who God is, worship God. Maybe. Josh, you might have to do this. For who has known the mind, verses 34 and 35, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? You see, so we should worship when we hit the brick wall of what we understand. We worship when we focus uh, on our limitations, but we we are also led to worship when we focus on God's unlimitedness. I love the word depth here. 
1133. It communicates the idea of hiddenness. God gives wisdom to the wise in Daniel 2, 21 and 22. God gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness. Notice the connection between deep and hidden. Oh, the depth means that there are hidden dimensions of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. They are deep in the sense that they are out of sight, unreachable. We can't go down there. There will always be depths of God we do not know because he is infinite and we are finite. We will always be seeing more forever. God's wisdom and ways are inaccessible to humans apart from revelation. And even with revelation, there is still more and more and more to be discovered about God. Here Paul cites Isaiah 40, 13. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? With a rhetorical question, the prophet Isaiah asks, if anyone knows the mind of the Lord or has become his counselor? And the answer is obvious. No finite human being has enough wisdom to discern how God's mind, to discern God's mind or, how, or to give him counsel that he should run the world. We cannot grasp the mind of the Lord, and thus it follows that we cannot instruct him on the best course of action in any situation. The Old Testament context of the citation is important, right? In Isaiah 40, it's the second exodus from Babylon. It's promised. Isaiah is filled with doubt and fears because they are so weak and Babylon is so strong. And here, God assures Israel that he can accomplish his saving plan because all the nations are nothing before him, a mere drop in the bucket, a speck on the scales. Friends, how much more do we need to hear that this morning? In the cataclysmic things of our life in this cultural moment, how much more do we need to be reminded that we cannot fathom the depths of who God is. And the call and response to that is worship. The thematic connection between Romans 9 and 11 here should not be missed. Just as Yahweh promised to save Israel when such deliverance seemed impossible and they had virtually given up, so too he has planned history in such a way that he fulfills his covenantal promises made in Isaiah in an unexpected way. He has extended salvation to Gentiles at the end of history, and he will again fold in believing uh, Jews. And the inclusion of Israel seems incredible, but it's no more incredible than the pledge to rescue Israel from the dominion of Babylon. God affects salvation for the weak so that his glory and then strength is impressed upon all. And then Paul, again, cites here... um, Job 41.11, the idea of repaying God. The meaning of the rhetorical question is not difficult. No one has first given to God. Hence, no, no, he cannot deserve repayment. This assertion is lodged in a context that stresses God's wisdom and knowledge is inaccessible to humans. No one has access to the requisite knowledge to counsel God about the course of history. Hence, no one can expect a reward for his or her wise counsel. God and God alone has determined the course of history in his own wisdom, and we become aware of his plan only to the extent that he reveals it to us. And he gives the example of Job. Job is suffering, right? Why? The big question of Job is God allows Satan to torment Job. Why? Is God good? 
Is God all-powerful? These are the questions of our life. And the book of Job probes deep into those questions. Job does not understand. He is just. Why is this happening to him? His friends come to him and say, you must have done something to deserve this, Job. His wife says, curse God and die, Job. Job probes God's depths, and then he gets out of his depth a bit because he doubts God's wisdom. And so in Job 38 through 41, God reveals himself to Job, rebukes Job for questioning God's justice and mode of operation in the world. Job is too limited, too finite to superintend the world and all that is in it. And so in this passage, God asks Job over 60 questions about the wisdom of his created world and the impossibility in our finitude to comprehend all the workings of it. Like, Job, do you even know or understand a duckbill cladpus? Like, do you? If you've read uh, Google's mission statement, right, it's to organize all the world's information and make it universally accessible and useful. Now, considering the volume of data they have stored in their servers, it's truly incredible. But not even Google, with all their processing power and algorithms, can achieve this. Only God knows the depth of all things. Only God is infinite in understanding and wisdom and power and in greatness. And Paul says that God's knowledge is unfathomably deep. He knows all the recorded facts, all the facts stored up in all the computers, in all the books, in all the libraries, in all the world. But vastly more than that, he knows all the events on the macro level. All that happens on the earth and in the atmosphere and in the farther reaches of the space and in every galaxy and star and planet. And all the events at a micro level. All that happens in molecules and atoms and electrons and protons and neutrons and quarks. He knows all the movements and every location and every condition of every particle of the universe at every nanosecond of time. And he knows all of the events that will happen in human minds and wills, all volitional all emotional, all spiritual events, all thoughts and choices and feelings, and that includes past, present, and future. He knows every extent that has ever happened and ever will happen on every level of existence, physical, mental, volitional. And he knows all the facts and all the events of every kind and relate and how they relate to each other and affect each other. And when one event happens, he not only sees it, but he sees the eternal chain of effects that flow from it and from all the billions of events that are unleashed on every other event. He knows this without the slightest strain of his mind. This is what it means to be God. What causes you to wonder, to be amazed at its inner workings? Like my father-in-law, one of the things I love about him is he's so curious about the way things move and work in the world. And we'll have conversations uh, at different times about the fascinating things about the world. And he is moved by those things to wonder. What causes you to wonder? wonder. This is Paul's aim as he comes to the end of this. When we get a glimpse of who God is, will we worship him? The scripture here gives us a glimpse of this. 
in this doxology, the greatness of who God is. And what does it ask? It asks us to respond in worship to this God who has known the mind of the Lord, who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. Isn't it so comforting that to know this God, the real God, the only God, is also a God who loves us and is for us? Last point, point three, when you understand what the universe is all about, worship God. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Everything is ultimately about God. Listen to John Stott. If we ask where all things come from in the beginning and still come from today, the answer must be from God. If we ask how all things come into being and remain in being, our answer is through God. And if we ask why everything came into being and where everything is going, our answer must be for and to God. We live and move and have our being, as Paul says in Acts 17, in God. He is the origin of all things. He is the sum of all things. He is the sustainer and implementer of all things. He is the end of all things. And thinking about this and through the prism of Romans, the gospel being the power of God for salvation, we are drawn even more into worship. I don't know if you've ever been at a pool and someone jumps off the diving board And as they get up on the board and start to make their leap, and then they go out into the water, and they try to make a move, but they're not going to execute that move, and you can foresee what's about to happen as that person is about to land on the water, flat belly on flat water. And then it happens. What's the response of all those who witness it or see it? Right? That is what happens. They see the event and they are prompted immediately into worship. This is what Paul is doing. When you understand what the universe is all about, the response is like seeing that guy flat on the belly. You you can't do nothing else but respond in worship. This is the God-man, Jesus. It's about Jesus that Paul writes in Colossians, in him all things hold together. The beauty of the Christian story is that the God from whom, through whom, and to whom all things have been made has come to save and love rebels and traitors and sinners like us. This is the God who cares about you. So that not, so much so that not a hair from your head can fall from your head that he does not know about. This is the God who is your father so that there's nothing you should fear. Not COVID-19 or any resulting variants, not loneliness, not financial ruin, not wars and rumors of wars, not violence and losses, not even death. This is the God who is your Savior, who emptied himself of all his divine prerogatives in Jesus and made himself nothing, who took himself willingly to the horrible scandal of death on a cross. This is the God who gives you, gives you for free his perfect righteousness by faith. No matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter how you have lived, this is the God who has experienced a death as a man, has been raised to life, and who will come again to judge all men. This is the God who promises to always be with you, to never leave you or forsake you, to guide you and lead you besides calm and still waters and to calm your soul. This is the God who has made you lavish 
promises and will keep them all down to his very last word. This is the God who will renew everything we see and hear and smell and taste into a perfected, glorified, beautiful paradise that cannot be defiled or spoiled by evil. This is the God that if you hope in him, bank on him, place all your worth on him, will not fail you. Will not, like Foster Wallace says, crush you. It's the only thing, by the way. It's the only thing that won't crush you. It's the only thing that if you bank on and hope on fully, will deliver you. How do you know? Look to Jesus. He is the confirmation, the promissory note. Because of Jesus, this is the God who is here with you right now, summoning you, calling you to trust him. In the midst of all the things that you are suffering in the moment, he continues to beckon to you. Trust me. I have you. I'm holding you. Summoning you to follow him. To worship him. To take up your cross. To him be the glory forever and ever. So friends, worship is the response to this God who creates and sustains you. Worship is the concluding word, Paul says. And that's what he calls you to today. How will you worship him? You were made to respond to him with words, with adoration, with praise, with embodied practice, with your very lives. And that's where Paul's going to go to right next, right? In, in view of God's mercies, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to offer your bodies as the spiritual act of worship to such a God. Oh, the depths and the wonders and the riches of his love for us. Let's pray. God, we, we, we fathom to, uh, to think how, how much you've done and how much you're doing. Like when we try to speculate just like what kind of a God you are and all the balls that you're holding in the universe and juggling like we can only fathom it when we think about it from our perspective. It seems so insurmountable and impossible. And yet you are God. You are not us. You do all of this. Both entering into our life and space with deep heartfelt love and emotion. As well as an, immu an, an immutability. Where nothing can touch your plan. That's the God you are. And we hold this intention, both the mystery of that and how that works out. We can't even fathom it. We can't fathom human responsibility and divine sovereignty. We, we can't fathom about how you make a grasshopper fly. We can't fathom duckbill platypuses. Like we just don't even understand. We can, we can get to the scientific formulas of it all, but God, but, but we don't understand how you made it and why you made it. It's for you and for your glory and for our enjoyment and delight. 
So I pray today that no matter how we walked into this place, that you would capture our hearts with the wonder of who you are and that we might respond with worship. Help us, God, as we come to the table in this very simple act of opening hands and tasting bread and wine, the very faculties to do such an act you have given us. And to be thankful and grateful for it is worship. To be grateful for the subtext of this meal, that it is your body and your blood, that the bread is your broken body and the wine is your poured out blood, that you have revealed that to us. And that we take it, we remember you. When we take it, you are spiritually present with us in it. Help us to wonder in that. And help us to wonder in the very fact that as we all take it together this morning, we take it as the one body of Christ. Like we are one. We are so in Jesus together by faith that you cannot distinguish or differentiate uh, between us. We are one in you. And yet we are all different little parts of that one body created to perform and embody you in the world. Help us to wonder at that, that we could be one with the people in this room. Help us not to miss all of these things. Help our hearts to overflow this morning in worship. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.